Hello, everyone, and welcome to the House View monthly live stream for the Chief Investment Office here at UBS. It is Thursday, April 6th, 2023. I'm Anthony Pastore here in our studios in New York City. Thank you all so much for joining us ahead of this holiday weekend. So today I am joined by two colleagues from the UBS Chief Investment Office, Nadia Lovell and Jason Dreho. Always good to have them here on the program. And as our audience, we always appreciate hearing from all of you, our live audience, I should say specifically. On your screen where you're watching this video, there is an ask a question button. It is open right now to allow you to engage with us during today's discussion. Uh, we will of course be taking questions a little bit later in the show. So if you have one for Nadia or Jason, please go ahead and type that in and get it to us. All right, so let's dive right in here. Jason, let me ask you first and foremost, I think a lot of our viewers today are aware that we had a little bit of uh, a banking crisis a couple of weeks ago, but it appears that it's, it's calmed down for the most part after some saves by governments on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, so what is CIO monitoring from here to assess any further implications of what was going on with the banks back earlier this month? Well, the first thing, Anthony, is to, is to see whether the situation really has stabilized within the banking system. And there's different things you can look at. Uh, you know, for, first and foremost is like deposits, you know, from the banks. So that was really the issue with Silicon Valley Bank. There was a run on deposits. Um, they couldn't sort of match them, and ultimately they had to go into into kind of receivership with the FDIC. So looking at deposit flows among the banks and similar kind of regional sized banks is a key you know indicator we're watching. And what we've seen at least over the past couple of weeks is you know deposit flows they're they're still happening, but at, at a lower pace. So it looks like that's kind of the the, the worst of it is, is passed in that regards. We're also looking at measures of how much different banks have to rely on support from the Federal Reserve. Uh, and over the past you know, couple of weeks, from the peak level, it's kind of moderated a little bit. Again, directionally, it's saying you know, that the worst is sort of past. It doesn't mean there couldn't be something sort of pop up you know, between now and you know, at some point in the near term. But you know, for, for the moment, it looks like some of the worst of the problems have, have stabilized. A very proactive and strong policy response within the U.S. and, and globally, I think that have kind of curtailed this. So, you know, we've been through this before. I think the policymakers were able to address it. So the thing that we're more focused on, I think where the markets have now kind of focused on is, you know, if there's not a banking crisis that moderates, we know there's still going to be implications in terms of, say, credit growth, how much different banks want to lend to different types of borrowers, like in real estate, small businesses. So really think the focus that we have right now is to see what's the economic impact. How much could you know bank lending you know be curtailed? What is the impact for the economy? Uh, what does it mean then for inflation, and what does it mean for the Fed? And just you know we can see already with the data for the U.S. economy that things are moderating, uh, kind of slowing down. And some of the most recent data indicates further slowing of the economy. This is to be expected. You know we've had the Fed raise rates almost five percent over the past twelve months. The consequence of this is to have a slowing economy. Uh, now potentially tighter credit conditions. That's going to further kind of amplify those sort of downside risks as we move later into this year. It's still open question and debate about how much of that impact these kind of the bank problems will have. You know, it could be relatively modest, right? And it can be something you know more significant. But the trend is to certainly slower growth going forward with a rise in risk of recession as we move kind of later into this year. On inflation, slower growth will help to kind of bring inflation down. And, and next week, uh, we, on the 12th, we will get March CPI data. You're going to start to see headline numbers come down pretty quickly just on a, because of sort of year-over-year effects. But core inflation kind of remains sticky. So the, the key point there is we're watching the labor market signs of labor market cooling and wage growth kind of moderating. And data we got this morning on initial jobless claims showed that they were actually rising more than expected or more than had been sort of reported because of sort of seasonal adjustments. So we're, we're having more clear evidence that the labor market is cooling. 
All this means that the Fed is you know, probably still likely to raise rates, uh, you know, 25 basis points in early May. That's likely also to be its last hike. But, you know, if the inflation data next week is not too bad, if other data suggests the economy is slowing, the Fed may be done. But boring a recession, boring a real kind of, you know, slow down the labor market where unemployment rises, the Fed's likely to stay on hold, uh, you know, as much as possible, at least through the end of the year. So I think that's the dynamic that's playing out. But, uh, you know, I think the, the banking crisis has altered the trajectory a little bit. It hasn't fundamentally changed the course. Great, Jason. Thank you. So, Nadia, let me ask you, because uh, as Jason's pointing out, uh, there is economic data that's showing that the economy is cooling a little bit as he went through. We even had the jolts job openings come out this past week that showed a little bit of a slowdown, which at this point is good news for the Fed. They needed something concrete to give a reason to stop raising rates. But as uh, Jason said, CIO does expect another 25 basis points in May. But at that point, you know, keeping an eye on inflation, it's receding a little bit. Um, we're still on our toes because there's so much that's going on and there is a little bit more uh, of that unexpected and, you know, and un uncertain feeling, especially when it comes to growth. So what is, would you say, a high-level overview of CIO's outlook for markets as we get into the second quarter here? Yeah, you know, we remain cautious on equities. You know, we recently downgraded global equities to least preferred because we just think that the risk-reward isn't particularly attractive versus other asset classes. You know, but that said, Anthony, um, U.S. equities have been fairly resilient so far this year, despite all the headwinds that we've been talking about. But we now have a market that is, again, trading at very stretch and rich valuations. You have the forward price-to-earnings multiple now at 18 times. Um, that's above the longer-term average. We have a Fed that is still focused and very determined, as Jason pointed out, to bring down inflation, even if it's at the expense of growth. You know, and while the Fed might end its rate hiking cycle at its next meeting in May, it does not mean that the tighter liquidity environment is over. Uh, the baton has been passed to the banking system. We have seen it already. We have seen effects of it. We know that credit and the availability of credit at a reasonable cost is truly the lifeblood of any economy, um, particularly for smaller businesses. So this is all interconnected, Anthony, and it does have adverse implications for growth and earnings. So, you know, near term, the market might be able to hang in this trading range. We've seen the S&P 500 sort of oscillate between 3,800 and 4,200 over the last six months, you know, because the macro data has been mixed, but it still has remained in economic growth territory. But, you know, more recently, as, as Jason pointed out, we're starting to see those cracks, some disappointing data points in the last week. Um, and we are at the higher end of that trading range in equities with valuations that are extended, and that makes it more vulnerable to a correction and a sensitivity to any bad news. Bad news is now bad news for the market. You know, so we continue to believe that it will become increasingly difficult as the year progresses for the economy and equities to really resist the headwinds of a Fed funds rate that is now above 5%. Uh, so we maintain our expectations for mid-single-digit decline in S&P 500 earnings for this year and also our year-end price target for the S&P 500 of 3,800, and that really implies a roughly 7% downside from here, um, Anthony. Great. Thanks, Nadia. So, Jason, as Nadia just pointed out, we're, you know, CIO downgraded equities to a least preferred. So that, you know, begs to the question, so what do we do with our money now if investors are looking at this and one of the key messages outlined in the latest house view is 
upgrading bonds to most preferred on that downgrade of equities to least preferred. So let's talk about what the rationale was for that, Jason. Well, Nadia already kind of alluded to that. You know, when you look at the expectation for, you know, the S&P of 100 or U.S. equities between now and year end, it's, you know, minus five-ish percent, you know, give or take, depends on what the market closes that day. That's not a particularly compelling return. Uh, and sort of indicative that equities, broadly speaking, are sort of pricing in a relatively benign outcome for the U.S. economy, given their assumptions for earnings and also like the multiples Nadia mentioned is, is over 18. If you look at what the bond market is doing, and certainly the rates specifically, it's already kind of pricing in essentially a recession beginning probably in the middle of the year with the idea that the Fed's going to have to start cutting rates uh, as we move into the summer and certainly more so in the fall and next year. So there was this sort of divergence between what the bond market was saying about the, uh, the, the, the macro outlook versus what equities, bonds were pessimistic, equities more sanguine. Uh, so we then think about, like, well, what's the risk reward you get between the investing in those two asset classes? Well, if you're basically getting flat or negative returns for equities, plus a lot of uncertainty and volatility, you know, versus what you can get if you buy high-quality bonds. And that's really kind of the key message, where you can get between now and year-end kind of a clip of steady coupon of like 4 or 5% if you buy investment-grade corporate bonds with less volatility. Well, that feels like it's a calculation, a reasonably attractive trade-off to make, that why at the margin do you want to hold, you know, uh, incrementally U.S. equities versus what you can buy is move up the capital structure of corporate America and buy investment-grade corporate bonds. So that was really kind of the rationale. Um, it wasn't necessarily a really pessimistic view on on the economy or equity markets. You know, the 3,800 price target is a little bit below what we are, but it's not like we're, we're not calling for 3,200 as a base case. But if you think about all the uncertainty and what's priced in the markets, you know, the for us, you know, from a full year perspective, the the more rational trade, the sort of the, the reasonable trade is to say like let's allocate more of that kind of high quality bonds and kind of ride through this storm. And in the short term, certainly, when we've seen in the past couple weeks, equities can actually rise; they can be resilient, especially if you know, fears of a banking crisis abate if earnings for Q1 are good. But if you look further out, you know, the overall macro environment is likely to deteriorate, and that's going to favor, we think, kind of you know, bonds over equities. So I mentioned, you know, investment-grade corporate bonds. That's one thing we like. We also like mortgage-backed securities. Like these are agent securities, essentially kind of government-guaranteed, but also really high quality. You know, so these are nice ways to kind of be invested more so than cash. Uh, and another key message is, you know, like, you know, uh, you know manage your liquidity because rates have probably peaked. So it's very tempting to you know, sit in cash right now. But if rates decline, if the Fed cuts rates, you know, you don't get the benefit of falling rates in cash versus what if you buy, you know, sort of, you know for example, investment-grade corporate bonds that have a longer duration. So that's really kind of the crux of it is just you know, an expectation of what's price in the markets, how is the market going to play out, and where do you want to get just a better risk-return trade-off right now? Right. And as we keep talking about with inflation fears kind of receding a little bit and also, uh, you know, as we're looking at growth possibly declining a little bit, this uh, buy-quality bonds, which, by the way, is a message in focus from CIO, um, you know, buying quality bonds, as Jason mentioned, um, is something that is being recommended right now. So thank you for that, Jason. Nadia, let me let me take it back to the equity side with you. And clearly, we've become more defensive in our, our recommendations. So what positioning changes have we made within the equity sector? And digging down even a little bit more deeply here, are there any sectors that you believe still look attractive right now? Yes, Anthony, you know, we did shift our position in even more defensive. You know, we now favor two traditional defensive sectors, so uh, consumer staples and utilities. These sectors tend to be more resilient during economic downturns. They tend to have more resilient earnings. And when you look at the valuation, it isn't particularly demanded. You know, in fact, both of those sectors are now trading roughly in line with historical averages, both on an absolute and relative basis to the broader market. 
Now, Anthony, it is very early in the first quarter earnings season, but we did have a handful of uh, consumer staple companies uh, report. And it's evident that these companies are still continuing to benefit from some of the price increases that they did pass through last year to consumers with very limited impact to volumes. So we are seeing some margin recovery in the sector, and that's encouraging. Now, while we think that a more defensive position is warranted, just given the increased uncertainty, especially as we look into the back half of the year and into 2024, we don't want to go full throttle in on that just yet. Um, so we did maintain some cyclical exposure with a preference for industrials. Uh, order backlogs are still quite elevated in that sector, so that should provide some earning support. And the sector is also positioned to benefit from any pickup that we might see in global growth, as well as spending on infrastructure, energy transition, and energy uh, efficiency. And let's not forget the geopolitical environment, it's not getting less contentious, you know, with, and that will heighten the need for countries to really continue to modernize their defense and surveillance systems. But Anthony, I just want to round it out on the other side of the ledger. You know, we did downgrade uh, consumer discretionary to least preferred and continue that same stance for financials and tech. Uh, we think that consumer discretionary will give back some of that outperformance that we've seen this year as consumer spending on goods really continue to wane and housing and the housing related segments continue to face uh, just headwinds from higher mortgage rates. And on financials, you know, it's significantly underperformed, you know, despite the fact that it much more than what we had thought when we initially downgraded the sector in December. And so it could take a breather near term. Um, but when we look out, there's still a lot of challenges around the sector when we think about it from a higher deposit cost standpoint, a potential rise in credit delinquency and charge offs and an overall tougher regulatory environment. So again, defensive positioning with a little bit of cyclical exposure and still avoiding some of these um, areas like uh, consumer discretionary uh, financials and tech. Great. And Nadia, just stay with me for one second. I know one of our other messages in focus is about diversifying beyond the United States. And of course, uh, there's a little bit of caution around growth. Um, it, what do you recommend outside of the U.S.? Are we talking EM? We're talking developed economies. What's, um, what's the message tying into here? Yes, we have a preference for emerging markets, and within the emerging markets, we also have a preference for a country like China. Um, and I think all overall, Anthony, our message remains that we continue to lean into value over growth, still maintaining a preference over that. When you think about it from a valuation standpoint, um, growth is still trading at a quite a hefty premium versus value. Uh, so overall, uh, we, we continue to emphasize looking for opportunities outside of the United States, probably over the last couple of years in terms of the U.S. exceptionalism there's probably some portfolio rebalances that needs to happen where you might be now overexposed to and overindexed to the U.S. and taking that opportunity to take some over the table of the U.S. and go into um, ex-U.S. markets where we think that the risk reward um, is more favorable. Terrific. Yeah, so there are definitely lots of opportunities out there. And obviously, if you're looking into equities, think outside the U.S. here. And obviously, we always want you to talk to your financial advisor because you want to make sure that it's right for your risk profile and your goals within your own portfolio. Um, Nadia, one more quick question before we pass it back to Jason. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of news within tech, and we have seen, you know, a little bit of differences between what's going on in the S&P and what's going on in the NASDAQ, even some narrow kind of divergences in the S&P itself within the first quarter gains. 
Maybe you can give us a little bit of an update on what's been going on within the tech space, especially given these year-to-date performances that we've seen from some of the larger names. Absolutely, Anthony. You know, the market uh, performance has been quite narrow. You know, in fact, when you look at it, only about 30% of the S&P 500 stocks are outperforming the index year-to-date. A lot of that performance, as you have alluded to, has been led by tech companies. You know, we've seen a massive outperformance. The sector is up nearly 20% year-to-date, and half of that came in the last month. You know, what's been happening is that this is a sector that has been benefited from a perceived safe haven and a flight to quality during the banking crisis that we saw in March. And when you think about it, why is that? Well, you know, the largest tech companies have very strong balance sheets. They're flush with cash. They are highly levered. So these tech companies can weather and navigate any sort of potential credit crunch that could come from banks further tightening lending standards and rated in access to liquidity. They are essentially self-funded. The other factor, Anthony, that's been driving performance has been this fall in bond yields that we've seen. We've seen a meaningful drop in yields across much of the curve. I mean, for instance, in March, one of the largest one-day drop we saw in the two-year Treasury yield in 40 years. And the 10-year yield also have come down quite a bit. You might recall last year, Anthony, that tech valuation really came under pressure due to rising rates long-duration assets, you know, those assets, those companies that have their cash flows further out in the future really got punished. And so with yields falling, some of the valuation headwinds have abated at least over the last couple of weeks. Um, we also have had a lot of excitement around generative artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, and that has helped fuel uh, a rally in semiconductors, among other sectors. So, Anthony, where does that leave us now? Well, what it leaves us is with a sector where the valuation is even more extended. We now have a sector that's trading at nearly a 40% premium to the broader market. That is higher than it was during the pandemic when tech was really benefiting from the pull forward of demand. And it's the highest premium that we have seen since 2007. I mean, just to put that in historical context, usually tech trades on valuation premium of about 10% on average. And so that gives us some caution from a valuation standpoint. I would say also, Anthony, the other thing to keep in mind is that while the largest tech companies themselves might be less directly impacted by the potential tightening of credit standards, the same cannot be said for their customers. And that has implications for demand and IT budgets going forward. So we want to be just mindful that the heavy valuation premium that's being paid for a safety net that might have a few holes, Anthony. Nadia, thank you. Yeah, there's uh, there's a lot to consider there. Thank you for taking us through. Jason, uh, but actually, before I ask you the next question, I want to just remind our audience, if you want to ask a question of Nadia or Jason, click that Ask a Question button on the right side of your screen next to where the video is playing. Jason, um, as we're getting close here to the end, uh, certainly, we've talked a lot about some of the more tactical changes that investors can start to take action on within their own portfolios. But in terms of key messaging, what is CIO communicating right now to our clients and investors? Well, we've already kind of covered some of these key messages during our conversation thus far. But let's kind of weave together sort of the whole narrative behind this. You know, we've talked about a macro environment that looks like it's going to get worse in the U.S. Uh, in the coming you know, months and quarters. Uh, that's not a great backdrop for equities, especially given what they're priced. 
So the recommendation is like, you know, to, to get a little more defensive, you know, buy high quality bonds. It's another way to kind of help protect your portfolio and shift marginally out of, of U.S. equities uh, into you know, just kind of high quality bonds like investment grade corporate bonds. Given the macro outlook, it also looks like we're, we're coming closer to potentially a start of recession. Uh, the Fed is almost done a rate. We think interest rates have probably peaked in the cycle, whether it's the two-year yield, the 10-year yield, and maybe already even the, the Fed funds rate, which means for investors who have been looking and gravitating towards instruments that are basically cash or kind of you know, you know, you know, very floating rate instruments, uh, it's been good so far. But if the reality is that going forward, those rates are going to trend lower, you have to start thinking about, well, how do you want to manage that sort of liquidity portfolio? It's been pretty easy to go into cash the past you know, six or so months, but you now you have to have a strategy uh, what you want to do going forward, because as rates decline, you get reinvestment risk. You know, you're not going to be refinancing those CDs at 5%. They might be at 3%. So think about how you want to allocate that strategy to avoid sort of you know, a sharp potential decline in interest rates. Uh, Nadia mentioned in terms of the global outlook, you know, one of the messages to uh, you know, diversify beyond the U.S. and growth. U.S. equities all overall aren't cheap, and growth, as Nadia alluded to, is, is not uh, even more expensive. When you look outside of the, the U.S., valuations are, are you know, more favorable, uh, which benefits returns over the long term. But also the macro environment has you know, maybe less headwinds than the U.S. faces, whether it's in Europe. Right now you're seeing you know, signs of the German economy actually you know, holding up quite well. And China's reopening is still just kind of in the early innings. So there's definitely some momentum that could pick up in, in the rest of Asia as a result. So think about investing outside of the U.S. And then one of the consequences of the banking crisis uh, and now potentially a recession you know, around the corner is that the Fed can't be unilaterally focused on fighting inflation the way it has been for the past 12 months. It's certainly right now its top priority, but that may have to be dispersed in terms of its, its focus, which all else equal suggests the Fed might be a little more willing to tolerate inflation, uh, not staying at 5%, but also kind of tolerate inflation that could be you know, at 3% or, or above for the next year or two. And that environment, you're looking at assets that kind of hedge inflation, can kind of benefit from high nominal GDP growth, like real assets are attractive. It's one of the reasons why we like, you know, commodities. We also like, you know, gold as part of that. That's another kind of, you know, portfolio hedge. Uh, you know, pockets of infrastructure and real estate, you know, even in this challenging market could be attractive in that regard. So think beyond maybe some of the traditional asset classes, an environment where inflation can remain high. So those are the kind of, you know, the messages, you know, buy high-quality bonds, manage your liquidity given, you know, rates of peaks, look beyond the U.S. and growth, and think about kind of real assets as portfolio hedges. Great, Jason. Thank you. Uh, let's get to some questions. A couple have come in, and actually we had a bunch of questions come in related to this topic, and maybe, Jason, I'll ask you this one. Uh, what's, what's, the, um, what's the expectation for the U.S. dollar? Uh, you know, it's been downgraded in, the, in, a, in a recent House view, uh, and we expect weakening, but any more you can share with us on that? So another one of our messages is you know, to kind of prepare for dollar weakness. You, know, you need to look to think about the dollar in the context of how it's performed over the past two years. If you looked at the level of the dollar versus kind of a basket of other currencies exactly two years ago, it appreciated at some point over 20 percent. Um, that's a really rapid increase in the valuations. You know, anyone who was traveling, you know, say to Europe last summer, saw the dollar and the euro at parity, you know, which is, you know, hasn't happened for a very long time. The dollar, by most measures, is quite expensive. Part of that strength was fueled by the fact that the Fed last year was raising interest rates more aggressively than other major central banks. Uh, and U.S. growth, for the most part, was holding up quite well. Now we have a Fed that might be done, whereas in the case of Europe, the ECB might continue to hike even with the Fed being done. And the growth outlook, at least directionally, it looks a little worse for the U.S. versus other parts of the world. Both those factors would suggest the dollar should you know, start kind of decline in value in the coming 6, 9, 12 months. Like that's sort of the, the, you know, the crux of the uh, you know, think for, for dollar weakness and the downgrade to, of the dollar to least preferred. 
One thing we are also getting a lot of questions, you know, recently about, you know, the more longer-term outlook for the dollar. A lot of concern that suddenly the dollar could be dropped as a major reserve currency. There's certainly, you know, news reports of different countries, whether it's China, Saudi Arabia, looking to maybe, you know, transact outside of the dollars. And so this has kind of fueled some concerns about the dollar outlook. You know, these kind of questions kind of pop up every now and then when you get these geopolitical headlines. From, a, from an overall perspective, you know, the U.S. dollar, by far the dominant reserve currency, you know, that's held by central banks globally. It's even more dominant in terms of, of you know, trade that's done globally and also just financial transactions. Um, we know from a historical perspective, when you have a dominant reserve currency, it doesn't sort of lose that status overnight. It takes, you know, years, if not multiple decades for that to happen. Uh, so I think what we're seeing is, and it's been the case for the past 20 years, a gradual diversification away from the dollar, like from a reserve perspective. And that's a process that will continue. It's not necessarily a bad thing from the dollar's perspective, given how expensive it is. That's not necessarily a good thing for the U.S. economy. Uh, it's also the case, though, that if there is global stress, despite all this talk about people wanting to flee the dollar, I'm pretty confident that if there's something that bad happens, that people want to own U.S. assets, you own U.S. bonds, equities, and that's going to push up the dollar. So I think there's, there's an element of, even if there's a kind of a big geopolitical tension, you know, and it's centered around maybe the dollar. Ironically, the dollar would probably actually rally in those kind of situations. So we have to separate out sort of some of these near-term headline risks that you're hearing versus long-term economic trends. Yes, there's going to be some diversification away from the dollar, but I think from that's a multi-year, if not multi-decade perspective. It's not something that's likely to happen, you know, uh, in the next you know, few years at all. And it's not what's driving our view of least preferred. That's much more of a tactical call, just given how strong the dollar has been in the past you know, two and a half years and given shifting macrodynamics. Terrific. Jason, thank you very much. And I have another one that just came in. Uh, and I'll ask you this question as well, Jason. And uh, they're asking, what's the House view year-end projection for Treasury yields? And anybody who's been tracking the 10-year yield has seen it drop pretty precipitously over the last couple of weeks. So what, what are we looking at here for the next few months? So the 10-year Treasury is around like 3.3 percent in that range. You know, it fluctuates from day to day. Which is kind of a right around that where we expect it to end the year, like you know, 325. The market's already pricing in a fair amount of, of Fed, you know, rate cuts later this year into next year. So as a result, both the two-year and the ten-year, you know, kind of are already embedding those expectations. So to have the Fed do even more than that would suggest a pretty rapid decline of, of economic activity, basically going into recession. It's something that's kind of relatively sizable that would force the Fed to cut rates much more aggressively than the market's already anticipating. If anything, the market might be a little bit too optimistic or, or kind of you know too pessimistic, rather, in terms of pricing and, and rate cuts. But a lot is already kind of priced in, which means things just have to kind of play out as the market expects, and then the 10-year kind of should sort of stay in that range. Now, Given the, you know the risk skew, you know our, our um, fixed income strategist Leslie Falcone would say you know she believes that the the ten years more likely to have a you know fall to below three percent, have a two handle before it gets back to a four handle, given some of the the, the risks that, that exist. But in kind of year end, sort of roughly where we are is a reasonable expectation for where the ten year will finish, given what's already kind of priced into the market. Great, Jason. Thank you. Uh, another question uh, that just came in, and and Nadia, maybe I'll position this for you, uh, asking about real estate and where does that fit into some of the scenarios that you and Jason have been talking about here today? You know, there might be some opportunities in the private market. In the public market, we are actually uh, mutual on real estate. And we just think the risk reward here is balanced. There's a lot of concern around the commercial real estate market. When you look at within the S&P 500, um, 
index, the, the office segment, where there's been a lot of headline, is more, it's, it's a smaller portion of the index. There may be some opportunities when you think about like more of the industrial sort of rates as well as those rates that are more connected to infrastructure like 5G. Um, but we think right now the risk reward is, is quite balanced within real estate, um, uh, particularly as you know, the, the cost of capital continues to increase. But uh, in terms of sec some secular growth within the space, that's being offset by the increase in the cost of capital. So, so neutral here on, on real estate with select, select opportunities within the public market, particularly in the more industrial sort of REITs and the more REITs that are connected to a 5G build out. Terrific. Nadia, thank you very much. And uh, thank you to our audience for asking those great questions. And unfortunately, we're just approaching the end of the 30-minute time period we have for this webcast. So thank you all again for joining us. And of course, thank you to Jason Dreho and Nadia Lovell. Great to be with both of you today. Uh, don't forget, we are going to be here the first Thursday of every single month. So make sure to come back and visit us again in May for the next webcast. You'll find it right here on this same website. And your financial advisors will be sending those invitations to you as well. But in the meantime, we'll continue to keep you updated from the CIO with our latest house of uh, house view through those types of publications, our CIO alerts, our messages in focus, and a whole lot more, plus our videos and podcasts through the UBS Studios team. And as always, we encourage you to continue the conversation with your UBS financial advisor. From New York City, I'm Anthony Pastore. Have a great holiday weekend, everybody. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.